Hello and welcome to Room Escape Divas, your podcast on everything escape rooms. We are back with another designer spotlight, and this time we are interviewing Tommy Haunton of Stash House. Woo-hoo. Woo-hoo. No, you thank know you the sad thing. Me. Oh, thank you for joining, Tommy. The funny thing is now I don't know which 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 uh, series we're doing anymore. <laughs> well, are we doing the designer spotlight? Are we doing a normal podcast? I don't I, know. They're I, all getting mixed up. I suggested the designer spotlight as an every once in a while thing. And you were oh, like, no, no every. every week. Because <laughs> there's so many designers that'd be fun to talk to. How on earth can we get through all of them? Because there's many of them. And one of them is Tommy Haunton. Brilliant segue. Brilliant segue. <laughs> now, the funny thing is, I think we've mentioned your name like a million times on this podcast with whomever we are chatting with. Because just like, ah, oh, let's just talk about Tommy Haunton for fun. Well, if you say it a million and one times, I do appear like Beetlejuice. It's a little oh. more restrictive, but yeah. <laughs> That's why you're here now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. A lot of downtime <laughs> in between the summonings. Yeah. <laughs> and I can't even remember, but I know that your name has come up uh, multiple times. And maybe I'm just uh, putting it all together uh, between the different medias that we're a part of. You know, if we're chatting in Discord or, you know, we're just looking at you and your photos. Who knows? I'm not too sure. Anyway, so what we probably should do is introduce you although maybe everybody already knows who tommy Haunton is i know who tommy is because i did meet him i was just like you know following david and lisa spira across <laughs> the country and then they jumped into tommy's house inside i just followed along so they jumped great. into tommy's house <laughs> yeah i was surprised i woke up and i'm like what are you guys doing here <laughs> good morning however probably we'll we'll let you give a proper introduction Oh, okay. Now, uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm Tommy Haunton. Uh, I am one of the owners of Stash House. I designed it with my business partner, Dawn. Uh, I also work on a bunch of other stuff, uh, mainly indie aid stuff this day. Uh, so can't talk a lot about what I do, but I did do a thing called Arcana, which was an exciting ARG that I worked on with a really incredible team uh, at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, and yeah, so I design escape rooms, but I also do immersive experiences, um, video games, AR games, mobile games, uh, all sorts of crazy interesting weird stuff the way i kind of like to say i make stories people can play so i do a lot of narrative and uh, interactive elements combining um yeah all those fun elements into sort of one larger thing which you know can vary from video games to live action in-person experiences uh which are obviously in some sort of hiatus now uh but yeah it's all all over the place and i love it feel very lucky to do what i do yeah, and did you uh, were you always into game design, or did you come from another background first? Or yeah, uh, I always say my origin story, my radioactive spider bite, so to speak, was finding a scavenger hunt uh, across the street from where I lived as a kid. Uh, I was really little, and one of my sisters and I were across the street and found this piece of paper under a bench, and it was the start of a scavenger hunt. So we never finished it, and we did the next logical thing, which was went and made one for our neighbors. And to me, that like magical one-two punch of discovering something that's sort of hidden in the real world and then going and creating for someone else was this like seed that got planted. And over the course of like all the different things, you know, growing up, I wanted to be an actor and I studied psychology in college and classics and nothing really had the same excitement to me. And so when it came time to like, well, I guess I'm going to give writing a shot. 
and I came to LA to do screenwriting and I worked for Disney for a while and it, I just felt really stuck until escape rooms and immersive theater became a thing. And I'm like, oh my God, this is the space I want to play in. And as luck would have it, I got fired from Disney and I had to kind of make a choice about what I was going to do. Am I going to keep trying to go the traditional entertainment route or am I going to try to do something crazy? And I obviously did the crazy thing and here I am. Wow, that is so much fun. And and so you created uh, Stash House, which... Yeah. Yeah, that was that was that was a cr- we didn't even know that was going to work. So that was the first like big foray into will this be a career or will this be like a crazy footnote, you know, in, in my story as I go and back to the Midwest and do something else. And and so in the when you were were creating it, so you have a team that you that you work with right? just just me and just me and don um, stash house okay. yeah so don was my writing partner and when we okay. we were set up uh with a producer friend of ours who knew both of us and set us up to write a script together and we just got along really well and became writing partners and so we kind of failed upwards in the film industry uh in a lot of ways i felt very stuck by the entertainment industry and kind of didn't get it, the networking aspect I kind of failed me. I was very uh, annoyed at how a lot of the people we met were in it for, in my mind, the wrong reasons. And so, yeah, we ended up getting a film made with Mike Tyson and Joey Lawrence. Please don't watch it. It's terrible. Um, but, um, <laughs> this guarantees we're going to go look it up after. <laughs> yeah, it's terrible. It, it deliberately has, like, it has a very bad Rotten Tomato score on, per, like, don't watch it. But you can. And if you look carefully, you'll see Don and I are both in it. Um, we'll make a cameo. But uh, it was a cool experience. But yeah, Don and I were writing partners. And so it was in this point when I started exploring escape rooms that I asked Don if he wanted to work on, like, jump over to the space with me. And he saw what I saw, which was like, this was very early on and that you could inject narrative so cleanly and play with space and these elements that a lot of places weren't even playing with back then in the early Wild West days. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, so Don uh, became my business partner. And so we built and designed Stash House together. I like that you referred to them as the as the early Wild West days because that's very much what it was, right? In the oh my god, there's something new. Let's just do everything and 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 try it out. And I ah. may or may not actually be on IMDb right now for reasons. For reasons, a non Mike yeah, Tyson related reasons. reasons. Okay. <laughs> oh yeah, on IMDb as well. Uh, just fun fact: you will see that I am very old, uh, or not very old. I'm older, and apparently I was born in Guam. Uh, fun story when i was oh, in let's see la this. it's not true but when i when i was in la interning um uh, i <laughs> i yes <laughs> okay now 1948 I, I look great i look really good don't i um not gonna lie that has actually caused some drama when like going to meetings and stuff where like we'll go into a room and ageism is a thing in hollywood and so you go to a meeting and they're like people are panicking going like, is this the right guy? Like, oh, um, when I was an intern, I thought it would be hilarious. So I had a cameo and by cameo. I mean, I was a background actor in a movie with Glenn Close and Christopher Walken, um, that shot in Kansas, Sarah Plain and Tall three. It was a Hallmark Hall of Fame movie. I was a patient in ironically, uh, dying of, uh, the 1918 flu with a mask on in a hospital as a kid. And so I put that uncredited role as a role and I made it on IMDb page because it's all user submitted. And I was like, how hilarious would it be to break IMDb by putting my birth date to be a leap year day on a non-leap year? <laughs> I picked one and I did it and it stuck. And then eventually their system like corrected it to a 
real leap year, which yeah. happened to be like in the 40s. And I put Guam because I thought that was funny for some reason. I was stupid. And it got stuck. Like I had no proof. And so it stayed there. And IMDb refuses to remove it unless I send them my passport. Like, wow. yeah, the only way they'll actually fix it is if I send my passport photo and I'm not going to have my real information up there. So I stubbornly refuse to correct it. And then it, it stuck that way. Yeah. <laughs> that's an amazing story (laughs) well somebody might think that that's just a different tommy haunton that too that too so either i have found the secret to youth i look really good at some point i'm gonna look probably closer to what my age is but still it's (laughs) yeah there you go you can be just like keanu reeves exactly like that dude yeah him and like uh you know rob lowe and uh paul red like i want their genes (laughs) seriously Sorry, I very successfully (laughs) derailed that one. Yeah, anyway, sorry for that tangent, but I've never told that story, so hopefully... That's that's, that's a great story. Now, IMDb is going to get a lot of interest in in Tommy Haunton from (laughs) our six listeners, as Nick Nick Moran would say. Um, Anyway, (laughs) so... uh, What was I going to ask? Because now I'm derailed. I derailed myself. Oh, yes. So you and and Don set out to, your writing partner set out to actually, um, you know, make your first escape room. Both of you are writers. Uh, So what was the experience like starting to design like a game and puzzles for that that game? Was that your first foray into it or had you done it before or...? So Don had never, so I, I designed all the puzzles and interactions. Um, and then Don and I built the story and Don mainly built the space and I helped on some level. Um, yeah, no, I mean, growing up, I did a ton of crazy puzzle stuff. I did um, scavenger hunts for friends. I did these really elaborate things that would trace our friendship and our story. And so, you know, I would basically, I did that three or four years in a row. I did one out here for friends in LA and I had had this idea of I would read puzzle and code books. I'd read, I played tons of video games. So I'd never been a formal student, but it was this idea that once escape rooms became a thing, because I, I always wanted them to be real. I didn't know that's the format it would take. But I wanted, I, Amazing Race wasn't enough. Like I didn't want to just be scavenger hunts for no reason. I have but, a good question. You mentioned something about being a formal student. It's like, what? You can actually study to be a puzzle designer somewhere? That'd be kind of fun. I mean, now you can, but yeah, yeah, now you can. Yeah. Growing up, like, yeah, I, I had read books about like video game makers or like these ideas of like Sherlock Holmes mysteries. I had, I think probably the two most useful things growing up, I had an uncle that an aunt that didn't have kids and they would do elaborate Easter egg hunts for me and my cousins. And they became like these really complex sort of puzzle and game based things. Uh, and then in the paper every year in Kansas, uh, there would be a summer festival where the paper would sponsor and do a medallion hunt where they would have a medallion hidden somewhere on city property. And every paper, uh, every day there would be a clue and it would be written in the form of um, a four line rhyming poem. And the clues are terrible, but that you could win money. And so I always would just read them and my favorite time was after it had been solved when it had been found they would release the clues and the explanation of what they meant and so even reading that design was really interesting to me about seeing how to hide stuff so i convinced my school to let me do that and so for several years i got to do that and somewhere on my school's property i'd hide a medallion only i knew where it was and every day's announcement had a clue uh and then they kept it up after i left but that idea of like doing these structured things 
that were puzzles that led somewhere physically. It, it was really interesting. I never saw it as experience, but it was Marty Parker who did the Trapped in Room with a Zombie. He was the guy that started that game and spread it around. And doing it in LA, I reached out to him and said, like, please teach me. It was like in Doctor Strange where, you know, he gets pushed out of his body and goes through the astral plane and then comes back and he's like, teach me. That was like really doing the first scrap game that came to LA and then doing Trapped with a Zombie really was this like, oh my God, this is what I've wanted to be real for so long. So I reached out to Scrap and I sent them a puzzle that said, hire me. And they didn't. Um, but what's funny is I met a bunch of scrap executives, you know, years later after I was, you know, in this job professionally and they were like, we remember you. And I'm like, thank you for not hiring me. Um, so there's that. And then also Marty, I reached out to Marty and Marty was like, yeah, like let's chat. So Marty became uh, really my mentor at first, you know, he, um, get, you know, told me that like the experience that I had designing this stuff, he's like, you have a lot more experience than most people do. Because you would design these things with structure and flow and like I knew how to test them. And so things that I never thought were actually skills going into it. So with Stash House, like Marty had shared a lot of data with us about like how to structure things. Um, and so coming into it, I had a lot more confidence than I, I would have just going in blind, realizing that all the stuff I had learned and done growing up and, you know, was some skill level. So on top of it, doing all games, the, the real challenge was Passive experience does not make you a designer. I call it like eating food does not make you a chef. You know, playing games, a lot of them does not make you a designer. So for me, it was making sure that playing all the games in LA, I was doing it not only as a fan, like but also to directive, like right? analyze them and use my myself and the team I was with as like, you know, even though it was an in of one, you know, where you're basically getting one data set. It was, to me, does this work on a prime, you know, primal level? Am I enjoying this? What do I like? And taking sort of the DNA of like what I enjoyed and what surprised me and why I play and trying to make that a bigger like structural thing about like the human experience about going through what makes these things fun. And so Don and I had a lot of theories about like, you know, here's my experience. Here's how we can make this space work. The biggest example we had at first was structurally, you know, people are really good about knowing layout of a space. And so you go into like an office park that is organized in a very square, logical or rectangular way. You know where a hidden area is going to be. And to us, it was like, if we can find a space that leans into areas where you are not sure where something is going to open up or reveal itself, you're, you're getting to be more successful and like hiding stuff and those surprises. And so it was physical architecture was can we find a space that lets us lean into that versus having to force or fake a, a hidden area? So that was one area of like playing with and what we were looking for. Um, so that's sort of how we started going about this was, you know, a lot of theories, a lot of the confidence I had coming into this and some of Marty's data and then the stuff we'd played and analyzing like what works and what doesn't for us and going into that. So it wasn't blind, but it also was a lot of untested ideas at that point that we weren't sure if they'd work or not. That's interesting. You like that you touched on um, the physical space, right? And how how to best make your physical space work to your advantage. Um, and it's it's something you're right. Like you're absolutely right. Uh, trying to force something to hide, uh, trying to force a space to hide that it wouldn't naturally be able to hide is a lot harder to do than to look for the you know bits and pieces that could that could potentially be turned into something using the natural architecture of the place that's right yeah. i mean that was a huge part to us and we tested so much because you, 
for me, like I would test forever. Like to me, part of the fun of testing is being able to see what people do and then leaning into that because people just have such a natural logical inclination of what you might want to do in a space and how a space works. So even when we started structurally building out Stash House, you know, we basically, I had hundreds and hundreds of people on a spreadsheet uh, of testing. And early on, I wanted to get people to test as soon as possible. We're literally, the puzzles were cardboard. We hadn't even built them yet, but I didn't want to invest in building something technologically until we had tested the concept and the, and the placement and even the lighting. So a lot of the early concepts that we did were just pure cardboard. And like our very first group came in and it was probably paying like 30% of the game. They didn't even go to our second or third area of the game. They just did the first. And it was really about just, we would sit in the corner of the room because we had cameras set up, but I wanted to analyze them. And so we'd sit in the corner of the room and knowing that us sitting in the room would affect their gameplay, but they got over it pretty fast of us being in there. And so we just sit in the corner and watch them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, we, but we sit in the corner and I would make a heat map of where people moved. And that was so valuable because testing is so valuable. And it's not just getting feedback afterwards because feedback is only to me like 20% of what actually matters. It is really watching the experience of what they move. So we found some areas people naturally avoided because of the lighting. So we had to add more lighting in certain areas. Um, other things people just lay out and heat map of the room some areas pe people naturally gravitated towards. So we began putting puzzles and interactive elements in the spots people naturally would go to. And you know, it's just leaning into the space and how the room is laid out and, and sort of using that as a way to indicate where to place things. And then as we'd begin to knock things down and you know, put them in and solidify them, you know, we just, it, it was a lot of helping, letting people's natural instincts guide where we put things. And what's really interesting is we never listened to feedback without considering where they were first. We had a puzzle that people would universally hate. And it was because looking at the data, they it was you needed two pieces of information. And what they would do is they'd find one piece was easy to find, one piece was a little bit harder to find. They would find piece one almost immediately. Right. And visually, they didn't know they were missing something. You got half of the information, but visually you didn't know you're missing it. So what they would do is they'd try to solve it. And they'd spend time and they couldn't. They'd get stuck and then they'd get frustrated. And eventually they'd find the second part. And they would do it. And they would say, we don't like it. Like People had a ton of reasons why they didn't like it. And so I'm happy to cut and kill a darling if, it, if it's not working. But I just had this nagging feeling that it was because they weren't finding the second part. They were getting invested and didn't like that. And so, and these are really good designers, people I respect. But the story, like people bleed data over the room without realizing it. And that's the part that I'm like, every single person that's criticizing this found part A first and didn't find part B. We made part B easier to find, but I'm like, there's got to be a way. I don't want to write one of two. Right, right, How right. can we present still half? So I'm like, no, there's a better way. So instead of doing it, it was a grid. And instead of doing it where the grid is cut in half, but you don't know visually because you're cutting invisible lines in half, instead of cutting it, like imagine like a row of like a three by four set of boxes the line naturally to cut in half was between the boxes. So you didn't know it was cut in half. Instead of cutting across horizontally, we cut it vertically, which meant some of the boxes were getting cut in half. So literally you saw you're getting cell half the information, but you look at it visually and you see it's half. You know oh. it's half because the boxes are cut in half. And so as soon as I did that one change, still same puzzle, same concept. 
and you're still getting only half the information. But because they were visually seeing it was cut in half, no one attempted to solve it at that point. They knew they were missing something. And it went from being one of the most disliked to now one of the most liked by that simple change. And so to me, that's the benefit of not only testing with people, you know, giving feedback, but also mapping out what they're doing. Because it was that simple notion of watching, trying to solve frustration, didn't like, you know, people are really bad at articulating a lot of their own actions. And that's, I think, benefit of coming from psychology and knowing how, like, you know, cognitive biases and, like, cognitive dissonance work in a lot of these weird ways that we like to believe we're in full control of our instincts. And our feedback often reflects that narrative. And that's only part of the story. So to me, that was really helpful going in. And still, like, a lot of the changes came from, if ever we get feedback, I want the context of where it's coming from. Because it's so valuable to see. And even me as a feedback giver, like, I know I'm biased towards my own self-narrative, but I try to be aware of like helping when I offer feedback, like where it's coming from and like what my path was to get there to help offer that context because I know how valuable it is. So that's a part of, again, that was, is testing that much going to be valuable? And to me, I feel like we have a better product because of it. I still see lots of flaws and things that I would change now that I know much more, but still at the time, like I think what really helped improve a lot of the experience was having like even the layout of the space designed and tweaked because of how we just saw people naturally move around a space. I wonder if there's going to be software potential for that. I know what one of the things we used was, is it Crazy Egg that captures heat webs of heat uh, maps of websites you could just have that for your cameras <laughs> oh my god like no i can't having like a pressure sensor floor or some way to be able to tell where people move like i mean no but looking at like video games and like looking at like heat maps for like multiplayer games like that would be so valuable in person it's funny that you brought like that you brought up the heat map thing because literally yesterday i was watching a video on uh the video game subnautica it was uh which is a it's a survival crafting underwater type game on an alien planet. I like survival crafting. Games. Yeah. And I love Subnautica and I know I'm someone who hates survival crafting type games and, and Subnautica immediately had me, uh, but I still made aeroplay because it was spooky at times anyway. Um, but they, they were talking about their feedback button and how um, not only did they use that, like during the game at any point you could press the F8 key and a feedback form would come up and you could like put in what you're frustrated with or what you love or whatever, what have you. And they made a heat map of all that feedback uh, and, and, and started to see where lots of feedback was happening, like clumps of where lots of it was happening. Are they all frustrated here? Why are players going here to the point where like they realized that, um, uh, and you mentioned this too, like watching where players go in the room yeah. uh, and, and instead of trying to redirect them, you thought, well, if they're going there, let's put fun stuff there. That's it. During the video, I, I just learned of the concept of follow the fun, like mm. see where they're going and like find out why they're going there. And maybe instead of, you know, trying to force them to go another way, like you could, you know, put something there for them to do instead, since they're going to go there anyway. And uh, that for, for Subnautica, it was like this giant ship that is like in the distance right away. Uh, and that became my goal when I saw that ship. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. And originally there was nothing in the ship there. In fact, it was like basically a cardboard billboard cut out of like a video game equivalent of that. <laughs> and they realized like, crap, we got to put something in this ship. Everyone wants to go to it. Uh, and yeah, anyway, but I, I love that concept of doing it for escape rooms because yeah, where players go in the room and when is incredibly important because you want to know what's driving that and if, if you need to either change it or adapt to that 
I, yeah, I think, I mean, just the thing of like building an, a huge, building an experience evolving where people go, it's like, to, what makes escape rooms, I think, very special compared to like, you know, scavenger and things in the real world is control. You have complete control of what happens in a room. And even to the point where you can breadcrumb where, because to me, like, this is when I, I, I do like class lectures and teach like on, on game design. And the biggest thing I have to, I ask people is like, why are you making something? You know, if it's if you're trying to be a McKamey man or like sociopath where you want to torture people, go for it. Like that's easy to do. You just make something frustrating and have at it. But if you're actually making something where the intention is to make it fun, to make people feel connected or smart, you have to consider the fact that, you know, you're building it for a general public, which is really hard to make something that everyone's going to feel the same thing. But to me, it's about consistency. Um there are amazing games that are out there that I've had a good experience with where I know others haven't and vice versa. Like I'll go do something that people rave about and I have a less than positive time. And to me, it's about trying to offer a consistent experience. Like you watch a passive game or like, or a movie and well, yeah, we're all gonna have the same experience because the thing is controlled. But if you suddenly add agency where a person's moving through a space and has control of where they move, you have to make sure that, you know, one, you can help encourage a certain kind of behavior where you can encourage movement or certain kind of pacing or, you know, a structure of a game. But more than the game itself, I think if the layout, the biggest thing that's going to dictate where people move is the lighting design, sound design, and the layout of the space. Like those things are your friends and these massive tools that can help encourage a consistent experience that helps prod people to move in a encouraged direction while still giving them the sense of agency you know you want them to be in that sense of you can do whatever you want or however you want to move through the space but in reality you're falling prey into like the designer's whims and if that that's not working to me as a creator you have not done your full job yeah so that that's what's important to me is all these tools that you know are so valuable but yeah like i love to me building something and to me designing it is only 50 percent of the job because it's getting in front of a person and seeing how they react to it and what i can do to is it pulling off the intention is it are they enjoying it and oftentimes people's imaginations to me are better designers than i am where someone will say something or do something i'm like oh that's so cool like i realize like oh they want to do that why can't we let's just do it so to me, it's like I, I, I'm giving you something that you're reacting to, and then I'm responding to your reaction. It's this collaborative process where you know, I'm designing for how people react. And even in my head, I have ideas and things I want people to do. But oftentimes, people are better designers with their imagination, and I like leaning into that. Yeah, I know there's uh, puzzles. Uh, Errol's design, and I've watched... Uh, I've watched people react to the to the solution and then suggest something else, and then Errol will be like, "Oh yeah, that's a that's a completely <laughs> cool idea <laughs> that I will put in my back pocket for for next time." Um, but yeah, no, it's I I really like that idea of um, you know, yeah, it is a collaborative process because you could design something in your head, but it could change completely when you actually get people in front of it. It's the same with the script writing process. Whenever like uh, I workshop scripts as well, and you know, you've written something out, you love it. And then it's interpreted completely differently from, from what you intended. And, uh, but that could be a good thing too. People notice things that you didn't even think you were writing. And that's, that's a, a fantastic 
process to be able to no, I, that's why i love like when writing something like having it read aloud and hearing like a person <laughs> even like when they're doing just a cold read on it like yeah the number of things you're like oh i didn't realize that but it's like it actually comes to life and then you get permission to actually like do the real work on it like in the editing process yeah really cool so stash house came out and um it's been i know it's it's I know it's theme. Errol's played it, uh, so it's. Um, how's it been doing during the during the pandemic? Dare I ask? Um, it, we're we're fine. Um, you know, it it sucks. We've basically been closed almost the entire time. There was a brief window when I was allowed to reopen the county because you know I don't think anyone who's in a position to make rules about things understands how escape rooms really operate. No. So we're classified. You know. Advocacy and like working, LA is a really difficult city because the permitting process to open things up is really challenging. You know, entertainment like immersive theater, any kind of new form of entertainment, especially, is really marginalized in the view of the city because they assume it's either an underground rave or a sex dungeon. And uh, I'm not joking. Like yeah. I've been in meetings with city, you know, officials, and their, you know, their views are very antiquated, and their job is to not get sued, and so their job is in their view to be as restrictive and like no you can't do this as possible so it is really challenging to to advocate for entertainment and new forms because they just don't get it and in their minds it's dangerous and risky so we're going to either make it where you can't do something or it's classified as the most dangerous crazy thing possible so when they shut things down you know it was categorized as like bowling alleys and museums and right. it, it's really frustrating because you know going out during a pandemic is dangerous but i think of all the entertainment activities one could do the indoors escape rooms are as i think as safe as you could make them you know you can do contactless have a game master stand far away if there's an actor involved you tweak it um i think there's totally safe ways to do it you sanitize services COVID is not known to transmit really well between services anyway you have masks using gloves during the thing there's totally ways to do it but unfortunately the officials in la are not very with it uh, LA's numbers are terrible right now anyway. Oh, so, so yeah. yeah, so it, 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 California at large is, is kind of a confusing place because it's advocating for arts and like being the centerpiece of entertainment, you know, and advocating for, you know, amazing innovation and entertainment. But in reality, it's just, you know, it's very traditional and it's frustrating seeing really good businesses hurting. You know, we've been very lucky um, to be in a space where we have landlords who are cool and also we were planning to expand. So we had money set aside to like build. So we're still planning to be around and expand and all that fun stuff. But it just, it may, it's painful to watch really good companies and businesses go under because of the circumstances. And yeah, yeah I'm hopeful that people can pull through, but we've been okay. That's good. Uh, I, you don't have to answer this, uh, but I'm curious, not having played your game, a lot of escape room companies chose to pivot to online, uh, you know, to try and adapt their in-person rooms to an online thing with remote avatars. Is there any particular reason you didn't decide to do that? Yeah, there were a couple. Um, I think one, like when I go into something, I don't like half-assing it. And I felt like... Uh, I don't mean to be, you know, bemoan anyone who has to save their business and puts it online. I completely get it. To me, I, when I mean half-ass, I mean putting a camera in our game. Our game is hard to do. It's very non-linear. Um, there's a lot of stuff to do. The game is 90 minutes, and even then, that is generous in terms of like um, a group of a large group usually does well with it. Or really experienced players, but it is a hard game and it is long. And and I think. 
putting a camera and having it be non-linear with one camera would have been really challenging. Um, additionally, there are areas we'd have to cut out because they involve lighting right. that wouldn't translate well on camera. Um, and at that point, when we're beginning to redesign the game, we might as well go towards designing a new one. Or you could add multiple cameras. We thought about it. It just pulling off a consistently good experience online to me was not possible for the physical space of our game. Um, at that point, we should design a new one. But then it would be taking the money we had that was going to go towards saving the business and expanding and putting that towards building a stopgap game that would be online. It just didn't make financial sense for us. Um, I think some games have translated almost better online uh, than they did mm-hmm. in person. I think, you know, um, Home Escape with the Assassin Artist game was brilliant and how they built that online. Yeah. You know, for us, there was the question of do I, I mean, I, I design for, can consult full time. So to me, would be building something that could go online as a business be worth my time when I am making, you know, money and doing stuff consulting? Is that worth it? to take time out of that, design something that could be remote that may not even be any good. You know, I would want to test it. To me, that is a six-month endeavor, going from concept, building, and finalizing. And to me, it's like, I would rather just stay in hibernation mode and plan to open in-person games when it's safe, you know? Because we could be building, you know, if there's a light at the end of the tunnel for in-person experiences, then, you know, optimistically, late summer, early fall, um, you know, if we start building in the summer, we could be ready by that deadline and have physical games ready. Um, it is raising the question for our new games. Part of what I think has helped us in a lot of ways is we are able to really take big groups. You know, when companies say, yeah, four to six, they really mean like, oh yeah, two to three can really do this well. <laughs> yes. Um, for us, really, when we say four to 10, like that number is genuine. You, we, we have run it for two-person groups. It is really, really hard. Um, we do it only on request and if people can like vouch that they are going to either be okay with not doing very well or needing a lot of help or they played a ton of games and they're like only in LA for one day and never come back. But four to 10 is our number and we mean it. Like we can take up to 10 or even we've done more sometimes and those people have consistently good experiences because there's a lot to do. You can spread out. There's a ton to do. So we were like, do we want to build bigger games? A lot of companies can't handle that many people in one game um, for larger groups. So we were leaning towards building larger, another 90-minute experience that was larger for 4 to 10. But now that we're looking at it, like, do people want to go out in 10-person groups anymore? Is this a thing when thing it's safe again? Do people want to naturally congregate to smaller groups? So it, it's made us reevaluate our future designs and think about, do we want to build a game that's really only 4 to 6? Or do we want to go up higher? So it's, to me, I would approach designing those games in a different way. Maybe instead of building a 90-minute game, we'll build two 45-minute games. But playing with that kind of space, you know, is definitely, that's what's been weighing on my mind more. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's that was a very, very excellent answer. Um, Errol, I've been ho- hogging questions. Do you have questions? Well, actually... I was just going to comment on something Tommy Haunton said a little bit a while back about passive experience, yeah. not making a designer. Uh, I agree with that, especially, I think, you know, being yelled at and having people angry with you might help towards being a better designer. Wait, who, who's yelled at you? 
Oh no no no! Not in a bad way. Do. Just like my players thinking, oh, oh right, horrible. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. No, I think I think I think it's. I mean, I think feedback is valuable, especially mm -hmm. really polarizing. Like, yeah, I, I think you know, going out to please everyone's almost is is a fool's errand. But I think getting really strong reactions and actually like figuring out where they come from to me is really helpful. Um, you know, because I ego aside, like I don't design for myself. Like I design for other people to have fun, and if they aren't, then I'm not doing my job properly. Um, you know, and I've actually had a conversation today with a friend about art, and the idea of like there are artists who make art games that don't play test, they don't design in the same mind that they design as an artist. And you know, if an artist is making a painting. They're not playtesting that painting. They're not looking and sitting at the gallery going like, what's their reaction? Hmm, is that what I want? <laughs> like tweaking it. So it's, it raised the question of like, can games be art? You know, Ebert, either the critic, or no, it was, yeah, Ebert would always say games aren't art. And he was, that's, oh, I, I, know, just, yeah. I, I wildly disagree with him. Yeah, same. <laughs> but it gives that question of that participatory feedback element of, you know, does making changes to your piece does that diminish the quality of the artist? Because there's that love affair with a savant, you know, brilliant artist who does a sketch with a pencil and it's a masterpiece and they didn't use any references and it's versus using, you know, techniques like a tra like tracing or having, you know, uh, you know, apprentices doing your initial work and then you come in and touch, do the final pieces. Like that question of art and like the finished product versus what it took to get there. Is like does does doing rigorous playtesting and responding to feedback does that reduce the quality of it or is art meant to be this thing that's put in the world because of the artist's overarching interpretation on and theory about how everything should work? Like, yeah, it's always been a weird like thing. I'm curious what both of you think about that. Errol, you go first. I'm trying to remember that artist. What's his name? The, the person who draws uh, and doesn't use reference objects because he just has it all in his head and he's like amazing. Sorry, you brought up the artist without any, and, and oh, what is his name? Anyway, it doesn't matter. He's just somebody that can do, look, he has, ex he just has exquisite detail and he just does these vast, huge murals, Japanese artists. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, when it comes to, Art, I think it. I think it depends on your definition of what art is, and it depends on what your goal is. And I, I don't. I, and I, I think there's a lot of people that have a lot of different ideas on what art is. As, as someone that used to be a musician, and I would perform, and I'd have a lot of. I wouldn't have a lot of conversations, but a lot of people would discuss. Look, your song is kind of happy, so that's not art. And it has to make you feel. And I'm thinking, well, what are you talking about? Happiness is still an emotion. I don't understand what you mean by that. And maybe they want art if it if it requires you to contemplate your life. But then again, you know, I think that depends on every single person individually. I don't really want to contemplate my life for a number of things. Uh, I'm, Or, for that matter, I don't regard this artist as my spiritual teacher, so I don't see why I need to learn any. Well, sorry, that sounds very arrogant, but do you know what I mean? It's just like they're not, <laughs> they're not there to teach me all these things that they learned in high school. Okay, that's amazing. You learned these things in high school. I'm now 30 years older than you. Okay, sorry, I'm just a very arrogant person. <laughs> I, I think... 
think it also speaks to no no to be to to be fair at the same time i have made a game which i love discussing which some people have called artistic and and it's because it draws it's very emotional and and it's like you know okay uh i i i am actually very happy about the discussion that came because of it and so i don't know if i'd I, but I wasn't out there trying to recreate art, or I, was, I wasn't out there trying to create art. I was trying to see if I can make the player connect with another, uh, with a with a fake eight bit NPC character. Can I played I that game, and yeah, oh, you played it. I did. You did? Oh, yeah. oh, I'm surprised. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I thought it was I thought it was especially effective because I think I think the idea of because in gaming like again I think gaming I think has the ability to absolutely be art and I think the question comes up is like what is art as a kind of a silly conversation because anything can be and I think it's more focusing on like intentionality because when I was in school like for the AP exam you know in English you had to write a persuasive essay using some piece of literature and the teacher I had was a brilliant teacher but she looked down on like Stephen King and oh, yeah. the idea is like you can you can still write a persuasive essay analyzing the green mile or Shawshank Redemption and talking about themes and symbolism because it's not about the material you're using like I would almost challenge that you could pick like some kind of dime store romance novel and still write a persuasive essay using the material you're given because it's not about the material it's about how you talk about it what you pull from it and the idea is like does making something that's pulpy and poppy like and considered like trashy you know, does that mean you still can't draw meaning or intentionality from it? Like, no, you can. Well, it's popular you know? for a reason, right? It does evoke like emotional pink. reactions uh, in people, and and it speaks to them in some way. And I, I actually was talking about this last night during our community meetup. Uh, you know, I went to I went to the University of Guelph the theater department. Like, I majored in theater, and uh, University of Guelph was actually for a time quite you know, well-known for churning out comedic actors. Uh, but what we studied was very serious Canadian plays and they're the most depressing things on the planet. If you've ever had the experience of, of reading a Canadian play, it is never happy. And at most ends on a hopeful note of some sorts, but things are still pretty much in the crapper. And and it was very much the the I, I was very I got very disillusioned with the attitude of my professors who yes uh, the same kind of thing with like it's not really theater if it's you know if it doesn't uh, emotionally eviscerate the audience on stage or something or it's not really theater if you're doing like we have a big Shakespeare festival here and they're like well that's like you know commercial and 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 uh, I, like. And I, and I actually bought into that because I was like a 19-year-old kid who, you know, was very, uh, very um, impressionable. So, I, like, for a while I was like, yes, no. And then I, like, went to these plays that are supposedly commercial and trashy. And I'm like, but I really like them. Um, and they're and they're fun. And I, not to say that, uh, yeah, so it, it's it's one of those, yeah, art is in the eye of the beholder. And, um, I, and I think with mediums like... It's like games, um, like with escape rooms, video games, whatever, uh, immersive theater, for instance, um, you know, to view them as art is, yeah, absolutely. I think there's just 
probably a more visible degree of collaboration going on that, uh, as you said, like, no, the painter isn't going to walk into the gallery and change the painting based on, uh, based on how somebody reacted to their painting. But, uh, you know, the process before that, before everything, before it gets to that gallery, uh, you know, the influences on their life, uh, their teachers, they're trying things out, they're getting, maybe they are getting feedback, maybe they have friends coming in and looking at their works in progress. Um, it's, the, all of that happens fairly invisible. And Errol, I still haven't read it because I clearly don't have enough of it, but Errol had this book called Grit. And you're talking about like, you know, the artist who can draw without any reference materials and that kind of thing. And um, I think it, Grit is the idea of like, you know, there's, there's only so many, uh, a handful of savants in the world. Uh, pretty much everything else is you have to really work at something to, to make it, to become successful at it. And, you know, what people don't see and what you don't see yourself, like when I say you, I mean me. Uh, um, but like what, what we tend not to realize is the sheer amount of work that has come before this. So it may look like this effortless thing and that someone's a genius, um, but nobody ever really looks at or talks about the collaborations, the feedbacks, the testing, everything that they were doing beforehand to get it to that point. Uh, yeah. No, well said. I, th there's a movie called Tim's Vermeer that I recommend people watch if you're all interested in like just the aspect of creation. But uh, Penn and Teller made it, and the premise is their friend Tim um, is like an inventor and kind of a brilliant guy. And he was curious how, if you look at Renaissance art, which I study, I love Renaissance art. There's a weird explosion. Like you look at early Renaissance, like Giotto and like these artists, and it looks kind of, you know, they're okay. And there's this explosion where you have Chiaroscuro and Spumato, like these amazing blending and lighting techniques. You're like, what happened? Like art, artists didn't suddenly just wake up and get good. Like something happened. And the idea of like, again, that romance, romancing the notion of an artist creating just something instantly. To me, it's silly because yeah, you watch like a, a professional dancer who's doing a beautiful choreographed piece and you're like, that person did just walk out and extemporaneously do it. Like you don't see all the hours of, like you said, both training in general, but also the rehearsal of that piece. Like it's silly to assume someone walks out, like silly to look at a painting and assume that there isn't a tool or some kind of assist. You look at like Hans Holbein and the ambassadors, that projected skull on it. And you're like, that is insane that someone could freehand that. They had to have used a tool. And so in Tins Vermeer, this guy who is not an artist proves to set out that he's like, I want to find the tool that I think Vermeer used to paint. And so he comes up with a brilliant theory about how he used it, because you can't use a projector. You can't project onto canvas because you can't match the paint color. Because the lighting affects it. You right. can't match it. So he's like, he was thinking of using mirrors. So if you're standing with your back to the piece and there's a system of having a mirror, and if you take the mirror and the canvas and you find the color and paint along the edge of the mirror and use the mirror as your guide, when the color matches, the mirror edge vanishes. And it's essentially a paint by numbers. It's long and painstaking, but Tim sets out to recreate a Vermeer and he, spoiler, he does it. And so the question is, is this the way Vermeer painted? It, do artists in the Renaissance, is the reason their art gets so good and their skill is so good is because they use tools like this to help them capture reality. 
And what's amazing is that I went to a Q&A with Tim and Penn and & Teller, and what's fascinating is that there are some very negative reactions, that they're saying, this makes the art not as good. And it's like, well, why? The end result is still beautiful. Why does it matter? It, like, we does finding the mystery of how an artist or person creates remove the beauty of the finished product? And some people have this romantic notion of, again, artists being the savant, the guy that doesn't use a reference, rather than using tools to help you create something in that process. So I just find that process really fascinating in, in designing and developing anything. You know, does knowing that you tested something out a ton make it better or worse versus a game that maybe someone just brilliantly did by themselves once and now it's perfect like i find that just really fascinating and i'm yeah i'm glad to have this discussion because i think in escape rooms and in immersive theater you know people don't often discuss the elements of what goes into it um whereas in other art an artist creates something once you know and doesn't draft it just puts it up and you can look at it and have a reaction that's negative um i worked with a bunch of at-risk students for years and they were be given work that is art you know paintings, things to look at and analyze. And most kids would look at it and go, I don't understand. I don't know how to feel. Right. And it's like, you that is a reaction. Do you like it? And they would say, no. Or like, that is a valid reaction. You can look at something and ha it's okay not to like it. And then, you know, if your teacher wants you to talk about why you don't like it, you can make an argument like, but you the ability of like, the hoity-toity response of like, these gatekeepers are saying museums and artists built this way to where you have to have done a dissertation on an artist or the concept to be able to have an opinion is a complete BS to me. And that's yeah. how a lot of our institutions that teach in the creative fields are that you have to have this education and this approach, you know, does knowing about Arthur Miller's life make the crucible more interesting as a piece? Sure. But you can still read it independently and still walk away with his intentions. Like you shouldn't have to do all this work prior to going into something to appreciate it or get it or find feeling in it. That that a similar experience happened to me when I was training uh, to to act, and I did a three week Shakespeare intensive at um, at Stratford, and it was very intimidating. And we we did some sort of exercise, and the instructors asked us like. How do you feel after that exercise? And uh, people started, and there was like a lot of students from conservatory schools, and I was not from a conservatory school, so I was very much, and they were like, oh, I felt like crying. I felt like I just felt something deep inside me unlock, and I'm sitting here panicking because I'm like, what the? I, I breathed, I breathed to my lungs, and it felt, I, I don't know, and I, I actually said, I'm, like, I, I'm sorry, I didn't feel anything nothing. I felt nothing. And the instructors actually were like, great, that's great. And I'm like, really? <laughs> Are you sure? <laughs> and it, it, it's, it suddenly dawned on me that like, yeah, you don't have to, to feel, you don't have to respond to something that uh, if, 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 if it doesn't, if it doesn't resonate with you and it doesn't make you, it doesn't make you a non-artistic person. It just means that's like me skipping all the dialogue. Yeah, you you have no that <laughs> you made a dialogue heavy game that you know. <laughs> oh, I found out about that artist. I was wrong. He's not Japanese. He was Korean. Kim Young Gi. Oh, okay. That's who it was. Anyway, he does anyway, uh, tangenting. But yes, that's now I know what to call this episode. Sometimes I don't know what to call this episode. Now it's going to be. You know, art with Tommy Haunton and escape room. Art talk. <laughs> art talk. 
Well, which is going, amazing. going back to escape rooms and yes. the, the journey that escape rooms are taking to becoming art in a way or being considered art, I guess. Like, well, I think like Privilege yeah. of Escape got really close to that. I think yeah. by coming up with an intention and using the form to tell that story or to tell that like that piece, I think it's really interesting using the form to further an explorer like that was not built for fun. That was built to make a point rather brilliantly, I think. It's like finding that yeah. idea and using the format. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's been very exciting to to watch that, um, and so for you, you you mentioned games that are being developed. How do you feel? I'm not going to ask you specifics. Don't worry. Um, how do you feel now uh, designing these games versus like what have you learned along the way uh, from when you first designed Stash House, for instance? I mean, I think the thing that really in intrigues me and fascinates me is designing. Like Stash House was built. I mean, we built a game that was R-rated, that, you know, used Grand Theft Auto and Breaking Bad as influences to build a game that was, you know, dealt with drugs and violence and, like, you know, it, it, in a way that's, you know, satirical, not meant to be, um, meant to be, like, a, a true commentary on, like, crime and drugs and criminal justice system. It was meant to be, you know, uh, entertaining. I think seeing these two angles of like with Arcana, the ARG that I worked yeah. on uh, right at the beginning of the pandemic, um, the origin of that is I did a game in New Orleans called The Game uh, at the Overlook Film Festival, which always did an immersive horror themed experience that was more or less like an ARG escape room that took place across the city that the festival was in. So uh, I was put together with a brilliant team of um, Molly Elfman, who was producer, uh, Eric Hoff. Uh, Molly Elfman works in film and is a brilliant like horror and film creator. Uh, Eric Hoff, who's a theme park designer and uh, a, a theater producer from Chicago. Eva Anderson, who's a brilliant TV writer. And E3W, who are a production team that do immersive, brilliantly produced horror. They came from filmmaking. So we were put together to make this elaborate story in New Orleans that told uh, the story of two rival covens. And yeah. putting players on this sort of path of... Um, you know, which covenant you aligned with and like solving puzzle content that was about learning how to tap into the magic of the coven. It was really elaborate, probably the most challenging thing I'd ever done. Um, and we did it for a few hundred people in New Orleans for this festival. We wanted to remount in LA. We couldn't do it because of COVID. So we were like, can we put it online? And the answer was no, it was too logistically complex. But the same team, we had to work together. So that's where Arcana came up, where we're like, let's do a brand new story and tell it for the medium of being online. You know, and I, I had, to, I've designed, I've worked on ARGs before for big companies and I, I, I didn't want to go down the road of ARGs are meant to be deliberately obtuse and usually end with like drink your Ovaltine at the end because they're selling something. And it's like, that's not cool when you go through this big emotional journey and the end result is you can buy Halo 2 two days early. <laughs> go, yeah, go see this movie. And I'm like, I don't, can you make something that's a little bit more cathartic and interesting without making it heavy handed? And that's what I love about horror and sci-fi mm -hmm. and fantasy is those three genres, especially I think horror and sci-fi can be these really interesting mediums for telling deep, weird stories that talk about relevant subjects without being heavy handed and becoming like the, this melodramatic, you know, sappy, heavy handed piece. So Arcana was about our response to COVID and the early days of being anxious about the outside world and fearing like isolation and putting it in the form of a girl trapped in a house with a monster coming to get her. Yeah. And so we were not setting out to make anything important. 
it was set to make something entertaining that entertained us that still reflected the values we had. And as we were wrapping it up, um, the protests for George Floyd and Black Lives Matter began coming up. And it really brought this question of like, what are we doing? Like, does this matter anymore? Like the world's on fire, literally. We're all trapped inside. And like, it really made me question why I create work besides just getting paid for a job. And afterwards, we got so many beautiful messages from people that like actually made me cry because they said like you helped us like one person in particular said they were struggling and the game gave her permission to deal with the issues she was struggling with and it ended on a note that made her feel like she was going to be hopeful for the future and i'm like how the hell did that happen we didn't intend for that at all (laughs) but the fact that so many people responded in this positive way was this like yeah I didn't want to set out to make something heavy-handed, but it definitely was nourishing knowing that I made something that gave people some kind of hope or like these interactions and like story were something hopeful. So that was really nice. I think I don't ever want to lean just towards making things that are important or being an artist, but I did find that satisfying. Yeah, there's something to be said for like, sometimes you never go intend to make something, but um, but it ends up being something else that, uh, you know, like you, you set out for one reason and it ended up having other other meanings to other people. I, I side note, I do, I did love the effects of Arcada, like the visual <laughs> effects. I don't think I knew it was going to be a horror game at first. And I was like, oh, cool. Look at, and then it, as it slowly unfolded, I'm like, oh, 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 this is, this is exciting. And one of the things I appreciated about it, uh, because it wasn't ARG, there were puzzles, uh, but my life got fairly busy and, uh, I wasn't keeping up with it quickly enough to to you know get to the daily or weekly or whatever puzzle, um, and but I still kept up with the posts. And so what I appreciated about it was I could still follow the story and figure out what was going on and 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 discover along with them. My most thrilling moment was when I was like you know actually texting the Instagram account to. Uh, <laughs> to like converse with the character um that was very exciting for me and that so it's still even being separated from the puzzles it was still a very entertaining experience uh to to be a part of and it was fun to see the communities that were kind of forming there too no i mean that was i'm I'm glad you had a good experience and that was kind of the goal was that you know to me a game like i love puzzles i i can just solve pure puzzle alone but to me, it's about using that intentionally in a way that's not punishing people because life gets busy. Saying, spend four weeks working on this ARG, it's like, no, who's got time for that? Like, I, there's so many things I wish I could do, but I just don't have time to dedicate. So finding a way to make it, I think that's why the big lesson across everything I'm working on is accessibility. I am not designing things for a small group. I want to make this as open as possible. So with the air, like, ARGs, and I've gotten some flack from creators who who are kind of like privately being like, why are you saying this? Like, because creators and like, especially the clients that come in and say, I want you to sell this big video game, make an ARG, they come at it from the perspective of this is how it's always worked. And I'm like, it doesn't have to be that way. You don't have to go into precious land and be like, a puzzle is gatekeeping you from going forward. Because what you're rewarding is you're rewarding the person who's going to say first, who is brilliant. And I love solving puzzles, but I went to like a Mensa puzzle group 
to keep humble because I would go and I'd be the last person to solve a puzzle. And I think I'm pretty good at them, but it is amazing to feel stupid. I love that feeling because I want people not to feel like they have to be a Mensa member who's going to solve it first to be rewarded. So making the puzzle content, you know, do that in a way, the opposite of that, where you don't have to be first. The puzzle content is optional in some ways for the story with the idea that you have the core narrative is playing out and you will never be gatekeep from following that narrative. To me, that is important. You can follow that story from the beginning. Now, what does the puzzle content do then? Well, the puzzle content can unlock interactions, meaning that if you do the puzzle, you may be able to influence the story and earn the privilege of helping shape that story that week. Or you unlock it and you learn more about a character, and then it comes back to the main storyline. But at no point are you restricted from following the narrative or being involved. If puzzles aren't your thing, if you're busy, that to me, like that is the most accessible thing, is using them in a way to help further the narrative and further the engagement, but not restrict or punish you because you aren't getting them. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's another aspect. Like I worked on a giant IP um, for a company. It was like a blue sky test project. It was a dream come true. It was an IP that I've always wanted to work on. And it was a very experimental thing for this company. And being able to convince them that, again, the puzzle content in the space, the interactive elements in the space, were only a part of the picture. The idea that if I came into the space with a friend and I love puzzles and my friend did not, could we walk out of that experience together at the end, having all both pursued what we wanted in the space and walked out having had a consistent experience where we can relate to saying, because to me, it's like some places that try to lean in to say, well, you can do puzzle or story. And that's the equivalent of you and I walking into a movie theater together and saying, okay, I'll see you later. I'm going to go to my movie and you go to yours. And we come out and all our experience was walking through the lobby together. We were in the same building, but our experience wasn't the same. Mm-hmm. And so it's like coming up with this ability to have overlap where if there are interactive elements, like I want people that come in together to have different interests to engage where the puzzle or interactive content is not going to prohibit you from, you know, enjoying it or scare you off. It's like, it, to me, it should be part of the ingredient list, not the sole ingredient or the sole focus. It needs to integrate so beautifully with everything else and layered together. And that's probably the most interesting thing is looking at the future. I see escape rooms and puzzle content always being something I will love and explore, but designing, I've designed about a dozen games now for different clients. And like, at this point, I, I don't take on a game design unless there is something interesting going into it where there's an element or something that's being layered in differently because i like the challenge of making the content of the puzzle be as diegetic or as connected to furthering the story or furthering your engagement the piece and also not being restrictive you know yeah no i hear you that's i mean that's why i don't just jump on every oh this is going to be something cool i i only get usually involved now in product projects that i think would be kind of cool and interesting to make for myself not well, I mean, that and that's cool. Like, yes. You've played with like novels and injecting content in places that I think have either struggled or haven't done a good job. And so I think it's even experimenting with how you can inject interaction and formats. And I think you've done a really, you know, cool job. Because whenever I see your name pop up, I'm like, oh, that makes sense. Because I, I know you like to play in forms that are not the traditional or like the normal route. And I really respect that. How did Errol mess this up now? That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I like experimenting with different things. And it's like, oh boy, did that fail? 
I, but I think that's I think that's how you legitimately learn though. Like mm, a creator no. that plays it safe. Like I to me, I love failing, and that's why I like playtesting because I can fail in a way that's safe, rather yes. than <laughs> opening something up and failing like in a big. Because I have no ego. Yeah. Like I don't care if my thing sucks. I want to learn why it did and make it better. But to me, it's like I fail if I release it and say this is publicly consumable and it sucks. That's where I'm like. I screwed up, but I love experimenting. I love trying things and failing and learning from that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Just taking a look at the time here. Uh, It's been about an hour. I actually have an escape room soon in like 40 minutes. So we're still good. But oh, wait. Do uh, we have an escape no, room? In fun- no, oh, good. Have, this was the day, like, uh, it's crazy right now. I have two escape room groups, and they will just book things and put invites in my calendar. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, I have, like, three escape rooms today somehow. Oh, And because they're all around the world, I never know when they are. So I just count on man pants. <laughs> <laughs> Your official booker. It's nice. Yeah. Well, well, she doesn't even book them. She just knows when things are because yeah. she's, so she's kind of like a... You're, you're- Google Elder calendar. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. She just, <laughs> I don't I even know what time it is ever. It's, I'm always so confused. What time is it? I don't know anymore. That's okay. I know so much about time zones since this pandemic started now. All the. I think I would know, but no. <laughs> The days blur together, and I ask Google yeah. Assistant all the time, yeah. what time is it in this place? Because I am the same way. But uh, I, I know that I could talk for like another hour on this, uh, but um, uh, I think I think we should uh, we're probably going to wrap it up. But thank you so much, Tommy, for for talking with us today. And it has been a fantastic discussion on arts and, you know, meaning and all of that fun stuff. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And hopefully it wasn't too deep or tangential. But as you can oh. tell, I have no, oh, no. interest in this field. I am, I am all for having uh yeah, I think gentle and different like, things. Yeah, these discussions are are some discussions that the escape room industry needs. Like we we need this deeper talk, I think, to get it started and to explore more. So, uh, very very, I always get excited when it goes that route. Uh, if people want to find you, where can they go? Um, uh, shout my name a million and one times and I will appear. Uh, just make sure it's loud so I can hear. Uh, go to TommyHaunton.com. Uh, you can see a bunch of my weird oh, work. Oh, TommyHaunton.com? Yeah, that's where yeah. I am. I'm excited. That's oh, yeah. where I learned Let's see. about Let's hope it works. Oh, <laughs> I, I hear you on that. Ooh, look at that. Yeah, oh. I, I have done a lot of cool, amazing stuff. I feel insanely lucky to work with a bunch of amazing people. And yeah, I've done a bunch of crazy stuff. So There's a um, photo at the bottom too, Errol. Oh, yeah. There's, oh, there's Jeb Hayden. Oh, God. It's, it's weird to see. <laughs> <laughs> This this being broadcast uh, in front of me, yeah. Oh, there you go. Oh, there's, there you are. There's yeah. my headshot. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's podcast. At some point, uh, this podcast will be in that list. I, I do oh, huzzah! Current. That's exciting. Yeah, I keep keep all the current press and weird stuff I get mentioned in. So. Um, yeah, oh exciting. wow! You should listen then to a number of our podcasts to see where your name comes up. <laughs> I, I am, yeah. That, that's that's that, that's embarrassing. I hope they were all uh, in hate mail kind of ways, being like, "Oh, oh no, that's no. Tommy Hunt. We're we're gonna get him one day." <laughs> no, no, no. I think uh, for one thing, I think PG always invokes your name a lot in a very in a very. I do pay her every time she does. Like she gets she gets five dollars. She gets five dollars every time she does. Excellent. And, and then yeah, stash house escape room. I brought this yes. up first. Stashhousela.com also gets there, but uh, we were being cute and getting a Swedish domain, so it's stash 
I, I saw that. I, I actually did search for Stash House and I got to this. Oh, what is this? This is not what I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, thankfully, what's really funny is I got a message the other day uh, saying like, wow, your stickers are awesome. They're all over LA. And I'm like, what? So uh, <laughs> there are a bunch of weed brands that are called Stash House oh. that are putting their thing up. And so uh, we've gotten tagged in some of them sometimes mm-hmm. um, by accident. So I appreciate the, you know, we're not really uh, in competition with weed brands, but I respect um those some people have installed our logo and i'm like hey go for it like you know <laughs> any for any promos free promo uh but yeah stash house la or if you want to be cute uh, stash spell out stash house and then put a period uh before the se at the very end because it looks like stash house but it, having to explain <laughs> so like stashhouse.com like no stash h-o-u dot se uh, <laughs> fantastic all right. Well, thank you again, and I will talk us out. Mm-hmm. Right. Stop staring your screen. There you go. Uh, Rubescape Davis is brought to you by Inverse Genius. You can go to inversegenius.com to find other... scary was shown on my screen when I shared it. I no. don't think so, no. <laughs> no, no. Uh, other fun podcasts, just like this one. You can also email us, rubescapedivas at gmail.com. We love getting emails. Um, if you're on Facebook, you can go to the uh, oh, I should have done this when you Facebook said Inverse page. Genius. There you like go. Yeah. There it is. Um, you can oh, go to Facebook... Yeah, now we're just, if you're on the video of this, oh, are we, we going to see Errol's personal Facebook page oh, with yeah. all sorts of confidential you're a brand information? <laughs> <laughs> Although I think I'd, I'm very, I'm very public with all of my Yeah, I don't think you're very exactly secretive about yeah, fascinations. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, most people don't know I have a podcast. Um, <laughs> this is my cat bus and I'm wearing a Totoro shirt. Just in case people didn't know. Sorry, man, pants. You were. That's okay. I noticed now, like, like since we've gone online, you can't derail me by like making funny faces or like or like <laughs> or or like since it's video, like you're doing a f- gross things in front of me. Now it's just like interrupting me and and derailing that way. So yeah. Anyway, <laughs> uh, go to the. Room but I interrupt you with important things, right? Like I can interrupt you with oh. Oh, this is what our Facebook page looks like. Actually, what does this look like? There you go. <laughs> oh my God, it? so many notifications. Please clear those. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I got six. You know what I could? What I did show the the enthusiast meetup group is I showed them all of the uh, applications to join the enthusiast uh, Facebook group. The regular enthusiast. And all the spam uh, that just comes in and I just yep. do deny, deny, decline, decline, it's decline, be decline. Oh my yeah. goodness. Anyway, so yeah, so if you're on the video right now, that is our RoomScape Divas Facebook page. Every Friday at 6.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, we have community meetups in which we yeah, I'm looking for that. talk about random things, that? go to events oh. on the left-hand side. Why can't I find that? Oh. I thought I pinned that. Oh, I guess I didn't pin no, that. There's ah, an events there we go. button. Hmm. There you go. Oh, I, to promote, I did uh, the last episode of the season, save for the surprise, really cool Taskmaster-themed one, uh, Escape This Podcast. I designed oh, right. a crazy game. Uh, yeah, that it was episode 12 of this past season. Uh, that's that's weird and fun. and going to be at the bottom here, right? There? Yes, Roland's there. game. That's it. Ooh. Well, that, that's the that's the talking about it one. That's oh, the, oh, oh, oh right. sorry. Yeah. It's the one right before. There we go. This one. Yes. <laughs> Ooh, fun. It's very long. It's crazy. It was fun designing it, but yeah, that's a fun one to listen to if you want to hear something crazy. Fun. Yay! Awesome. All right. And if you're on Twitter, 
maybe use the hashtag redivas or you can probably just find us personally on there too let's face it thanks guys thank you bye bye